and welcome to Social Work Sorted, the podcast. I'm Vicky from Social Work Sorted Training and Consultancy. Through this podcast, my blog and social media, I support new social workers from the start of their journey in this incredible career for as long as they need my help. I share skills-based knowledge, realistic advice and guidance for practice. Social Work Sorted has always been everything I needed as a newly qualified social worker and I am so happy to be able to help you understand that whatever your fears or challenges, you are not alone. I'm so excited to be able to share today's episode with you. I spoke to Professor Lena Dominelli. Lena Dominelli is a social worker, a researcher, writer and an academic. She currently chairs the International Association of Schools of Social Work Committee on Disaster Interventions, Climate Change and Sustainability. And she also chairs the Special Interest Group on Disaster Interventions for the British Association of Social Workers. I genuinely learned so much from our conversation and felt able to reflect on so many of the things that we talked about, the connection between green social work, climate justice and the work that you as newly qualified social workers are doing day to day is so strong and often overlooked. I don't know if anybody else feels the same way as me but I know when I'm focusing so much on day-to-day tasks and stress and the micro aspect of social work I then find it very difficult to tune in to things that are happening Globally, even though I know how important it is that I have an awareness of that, it can feel, as I say in the podcast and in my conversation with Lena, it can feel so heavy. But the climate crisis is not going away. It's not something we can ignore. It's something inextricably linked to our social work ethics and values. And I would just encourage everyone listening, instead of falling into a place of dread and despair and feeling powerless and that we can't do anything about it to just reframe that and start thinking what you can do even if it's something very small and I'm not talking about changes that you can make in your day-to-day life although that's absolutely possible but I'm talking about changes that we can make as social workers who are committed to social justice and challenging oppression and just starting to even just starting to develop a bit more of an awareness or doing a little bit more learning around the climate crisis instead of burying your head in the sand. And I don't need to think that I'm preaching here. I need this pep talk myself because I definitely find it really difficult myself to tune into things that are going on globally when, particularly when I've had a very difficult day at work and all I want to do is tune out. But that isn't helpful and actually if you tune in to the right places if you go and look in the show notes at some of the reading that Lena has recommended it's very hopeful and it's very positive and there are lots of very tangible and practical things that we can do as social workers and humans so I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did towards the end that we had a bit of difficulty with the signal so there might be a little bit of moments in the podcast that skip a little bit I couldn't do I couldn't do too much about that without taking out chunks of what Lena was saying and it was so important I just made the decision to keep it in and hope that you can just listen with patience it's not all the way through it's just a little bit towards the end so enjoy 
Hi, Lena. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I was just saying Hi, off the record that I'm a little bit in awe. I'm very grateful that you've come on to talk to me. So for anybody listening who doesn't know who you are, which I can't imagine that they wouldn't know, but if they want to know more about you, could you talk a little bit about your journey into social work and spanning from when you started to now? Basically, I never planned to be a social worker. I was always a community development worker and always involved in community volunteering from whatever age I can think of. And then I find out from my dad that he was a community worker before him. And I thought, oh, I thought I discovered it for myself. And now I find it's in my genes, which we both had a laugh over. But yeah, I just... I then went from community work when Satcher decided to close all of us down and take it out of social work. I then trained to become a social worker and then went and worked in all the different parts of social work that I could think of. So social services, as it was called at the time, probation. I was a criminologist and a sociologist before that. I also did some residential care, some work in what they were called then, juvenile offenders institutions, and now young offenders institutionality. Everything keeps changing. And uh, then I, uh, basically it would be in 2004, I um, got interested in the 204 Indian Ocean tsunami and saw that they were talking to all the professions except social workers. And I thought, but we are there. I know people who are there working as social workers. And then it got even worse because by 2005, the same thing was happening again. So I decided something had to be done. But at the beginning of 2005, before Katrina, um, in the 204 tsunami, I got IASW, the International Association of Schools of Social Work. And I had just finished being president in 2004. So in 2005, we had our first meeting. I think it was about the 5th of January. And I went there prepared with my plan <laughs> of how to start, what did I call it? The um, Restoring people's livelihoods after disasters, and I called it Ripple for short. And of course, the board agreed it and decided that I'd better do the work on that since I was the main one interested in it. And that was fine because I wanted to do it in a way. And it just grew from there. So I then went to, I did a lot of work in Sri Lanka for a very long time because when I went from Southampton to Durham. Durham was even more involved in Sri Lanka. So I got involved with the Durham project. And we did lots of work there trying to build capacity in social work, which they needed, and also to get involved in building resources like children's nurseries, community centers. So there was a lot of stuff that was about reconstruction and rebuilding, building back better as it was called then I hate the term I want building back transformatively and uh, then I was asked to become involved in the Institute for Hazard Risk and Resilience and I was there for six or seven years maybe longer because I started informally at first and then became more involved and it was a great experience because I worked with physical scientists and it was that work around climate change 
and earthquakes and floods and all sorts of other things soiled that I thought, okay, we need a paradigm for social work because I had been involved in ecological social work and in deep environmental social work. And it wasn't good enough as far as I was concerned because it was not dealing with the fundamental concerns I had, which is why is it, A, that we're reliant on fossil fuels, although I didn't put it in those terms then, I did by the time I wrote Green Social Work. When I started 2007, eight, up to nine, it was different terminology until I got involved with the physical scientists. And then I thought, yeah, we are not critiquing, and neither did the physical scientists, critiquing neoliberal ways of producing goods and services, which means that we exploit the Earth's resources and treat the Earth as a sink to dump our effluent in. And we exploit people by paying them next to nothing for producing these goods. And then we're encouraged to consume and overconsume by buying things that have a built-in obsolescent date and including in clothes. It was during the time that then I was thinking, oh, all these young people are going into Primart and buying really cheap clothes, like for a couple of pounds. And I kept thinking, how can people be paid a decent wage if you're paying? And then they throw it away as soon as they got bored with it. And I thought, this is ridiculous. So that's where green social work came in. And I developed the model. And then I thought, I can't call it deep social work or ecological social work because it carries all the baggage I've been critiquing. So I thought long and hard. And I thought, I quite like green social work. So that's why it became green social work. And then I just started working in more and more disasters. And I left. Durham, because after five years of saying, yes, we'll start an MSC in disaster interventions and humanitarian aid, and they kept saying, we haven't got the resources yet. Sterling then said, yeah, come here and start it here. So I said, done. So I came up here. That's amazing. The short version of my, yeah, had lots of interesting, very, I've been very lucky. I've had met fascinating people, learned an awful lot through that long journey, but yeah. I think for because this is a podcast, I know lots of social workers listen to it. It's primarily for new social workers. And I think when you first qualify and you go into a new job, you can be very much in this bubble and you have to step back and back to think it's not just national, social work is international. And at the root of that is kind of the earth that we're living on and how much that matters really. And it can be I think really helpful it will be for listeners to start thinking that way, think globally about social work. Yeah, and I think it's important we think globally because we live on one planet and it's an interdependent world. And if we exhaust the resources we have, there won't be any more to use them and treat them uh, properly. And that's why I invented, which is different from ecological and deep environmental social work, I've introduced the notion that The earth has a right to be cared for, and we have a responsibility to care for it. But I was also thinking, like most people will know me as anti-racist social work, feminist social work, anti-oppressive social work, globalization and social work. When I look back and I think at anti-oppressive social work in 2002, long before the 204 tsunami, and this was just being an ordinary social worker working with people living in disadvantaged areas in the UK and noticing the terrible housing, terrible environment. 
I didn't have the notion of environmental racism, which I did pick up very quickly from Roger Bullard in the U.S., but I was looking at their houses and they were appalling. The areas that they had to live in was terrible with, and especially if you go back to the 80s, the beginning of the 80s, the late 70s, so I qualified in 1980. Like in, in Northern England, like Middlesbrough, you couldn't even see the city because of the smoke. Sheffield, I remember, all these blast furnaces, just they looked like satanic mills with great big huge fires and the air was terrible so actually although I thought most left-wingers I guess in the UK did at the time when the miners strike in 84 came along I was one of those organizing helping women but men as well to survive the Thatcherite attack and now looking back on it, and I used to say this to people when I lived in Sheffield, I said, we might complain as much as we like. And I do a lot about the terrible things Margaret Thatcher has done. But I said, one good thing she's done is give us clean air. The bad thing she didn't do was to say, if we're going to have clean air, we also still need jobs and high paid jobs. Yeah. So I'll carry on banging on about that. So in 2002, if you look at my holistic intervention chart, which was like a whole systems approach to our profession, there is the physical environment in there. And at that time, I was talking about housing. I'm still talking about housing because it's get, it hasn't gets damaged in earthquakes. Uh, they, it can subside in drought, but that's less of a big issue than flooding. And in earthquakes, the whole community gets destroyed yeah so as it can in some floods yeah so I just think oh I didn't know that I was just gonna give this up and move from individual houses to community reconstruction it's almost that the work that you were doing in the 80s and the books that you were writing and writing about anti-racist practice that is now at the forefront of agendas and at the time that you were writing about that it perhaps wasn't is that it wasn't I got attacked for writing them really seriously like around anti-racist social work the far right called me a traitor to the race and wanted me to go and see them and then they actually started casing my joints cutting my tires on the car and all sorts of horrible things and I had to get the police involved and they had to teach me how to look under my car for potential bombs and all sorts of things oh wow it was really serious, but it died down the minute the media lost interest in it. But yeah, so for a long time, I wouldn't go anywhere near the media because you couldn't control it. Although I tried to say, if I'm going to talk, I'm going to be able to see what you write, but they didn't. And they just wrote what they wanted and wouldn't publish my protests about, I didn't say that, you said that, that's not the same thing. And then I just said, you know what, I don't have to talk to you, so I'm not. Um, yeah. And I decided by not talking to them, they control the agenda completely, even more so than they have to at least acknowledge that you're there, even if they don't give your true message out. So there was fake news long before Donald Trump came along. That was in the 90s. And Melanie Phillips in The Observer, which I used to think was a nice left-center paper, called it she had an oppressive urge to do something about anti-oppressive practice, which she did. She was the one that let the media attack on me, which then the right wing, of course, picks up because all the other media picks it up. Yeah. I had a lot to learn then about 
now media involvement and so on. So really interesting journey. Yeah. Happening. But yeah, I'm glad that people now it's nobody even thinks about it, which is great. That's how it should be. And I'm hoping that green social work will become the same. I know that in places like Australia, green social work is much bigger. And that even ecological social work, which people like Margaret Austin promote, has started to take some of the things, but they don't go as far as I do with the earth has a right to be cared for, and we need to look at production and consumption. They haven't got that far yet. They will. And people have to acknowledge that at least green social work exists. So, yeah. And that's really important, I think, um, and why I wanted a different term so that it could stand out as being something different. Even if people say, well, what's different? and it's all it's just as all connected isn't it because when we see the crisis that the climate is in at the moment the people who are have been most affected and are currently most affected are people who are black brown part of the global majority and it's only when or I think it's only when the climate crisis starts to impact on white people that a lot of the noise starts. We've had flooding in Pakistan only this week. Significant amounts of people injured and displaced. And it's not at the forefront of the media, you know, in the UK at the moment. And it's not like that's that's not new, is it? That's been happening for years and years. Yeah, years and years. And I tried to intervene in that, actually, by saying, I think we need to make a statement. And I wrote one out and sent it to everybody. And I was surprised. So we had a bit of discussion. I was surprised at the reaction, and I won't go into too many details because, you know, people are still involved, and I want to convince them that they need to think differently. But the first reaction I got was, I don't think we need to say anything about this because we don't say something about every crisis. We can't, mainly because I can't be everywhere all the time. I've got my Mm. own to do, and I'm way overworked trying to keep so many balls juggling. But I was surprised at that response because we don't respond to everybody. We shouldn't respond to some. So I did, of course, respond back. And I said, sorry, I don't think we should have a general statement, which is what they were arguing that holds for others. Because I said, each disaster is different. It affects people differently. I believe in the differentiated experience of disasters. And therefore... We have to take each one and contextualize it and everything else. I said, I'm sorry, we're going to have to agree to differ because I am not going to say a general statement will take care of the specifics that I want to be involved in. And I said, providing a bureaucratic response is not where I'm at. I want to relate to people as people and to be empathetic even if I can't say that we'll do an awful lot other than collect money and help them in that way, it's going to be the main way. And maybe somebody suggested after the discussion went on for a bit, maybe we can help with training. And I thought, yeah, we could do that too. I'm doing a lot of work around Ukraine. And I said, a lot of us are, but what about Pakistan? (laughs) So anyway, it did get the discussion going and there were some really good suggestions made. But yeah, but it was just an interesting, I hadn't expected that. And of course I was, I thought, yeah, when I'm tired, I can get grumpy. 
I'm normally not, because I normally have a sense of humor and an optimistic worldview. But I thought, I can't believe I'm hearing this now in 2022. Yeah. And when we're supposed to be decolonizing social work. And I thought, well, I've been doing this ever since I wrote anti-racist social work. And I thought, I can't believe that this is so obviously about colonization, not responding to decolonization. Had it been, I think, if I'd done, no, I didn't deliberately, but that was deliberate. I did not. I did ask my friends in universities, is there anything that you would like us to do? Because I'm still the chair of the Disaster Interventions Committee NISW, would you like us to do anything? And I always ask people, do you want us? Because I'm not going to impose myself. And the person came back and said, no, we're all okay. We've got good. And this was the Lismore blood. Yes, it was a terrible experience. Australia is well organized to respond, as is Japan and many other countries, Chile. So I don't always go in because I check it out first. But mm. in I couldn't because I didn't know anyone. The same thing in Durban. Durban, I asked, and people said, no, we're coping with it because it's confined to a small area. So I thought, okay, because otherwise it would be perpetuating colon social relations, and I'm not into that. So anyway, I was what? You're telling me that we can't even have a statement? So it still shows you how much people are still not agreeing and, you know, in places like the U.S., they still don't think green social work has any relevance to social work practice. And I think this is a perfect example because there we know there are 33 million people affected in Pakistan, which is a huge proportion of the population, it's about a third of it. And the infrastructure is just in a real mess because bridges, roads, houses, hospitals, clinics, lots of important infrastructure just and I think eventually there will be people who have relatives in like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the US, Britain, um, and they'll want to come and join the relatives here because they will have the opportunity to quickly yeah. build their lives. And I think we would be much wiser if we help them to rebuild their societies where they work. People don't like to move from their place where they originally born and we have a few adventures like me who like to go everywhere because my mom said the minute I was born I was always asking questions and wanting to go hit this there and everywhere because I was a curious child I haven't stopped I'm still a curious child as a to everybody I've never grown up since I was 18 I know I don't look like I'm 18 especially when I'm a child <laughs> and have my black eyes but yeah I just think I'm still curious. That's never going to go unless I lose my health and all the rest of it and acquire dementia. Then it will go. But until then, I'll just be curious. So yeah. I'm intimidated by thinking, well, I don't know anybody there. I just think if I get lots of people agreeing with me, then I just go and say, there's a small group of us, of however it is, who would like to help. And this is what we can help you with. If you tell us what you want, we'll tell you what we can do and what we can't do. And that's the model I've always used, you know, because then it will be culturally relevant and locality specific because the people there know what they need. I don't. Yeah. I don't know when I'm not there. Increasingly, and I did develop a virtual helpline, which I used 
in the Nepal earthquakes in 2015, and I've written it up in the Gorkha earthquake book, written, edited rather by Louise Bracken. And in that, I talk about using the virtual helpline, but I developed that to support social workers in the Christchurch earthquakes because they wrote to me and said, we need help. We're just exhausted. We don't know how to get help for us. Because the workers are never thought about. You just yeah. go from one thing to another. And as long as the disaster lasts, you're expected to be there. And then you go back to the office and pick up where you left off because nobody's done your work. Yeah, That's all one way of dealing with it. Because by that time, I'd already established, because being a foreigner, and yes, I went to a lot of the global south, where majority people are not white people like me. And even if I call myself off-white, um, but they're not like me. So I think, okay, I will do my best and work with them and all the rest of it. But then they start worrying about me. I'm there to help them, but they're worrying about me. So they keep saying, and I had this so many times, oh, you must sleep here. This is safer than sleeping there. I will sleep there. No, you won't. I'm going to sleep there. And <laughs> I hopefully will know. I've done my risk assessment, know what to do. No. Oh, you're not eating. So we'll share my thing. And I kept thinking. And eventually I thought, this has got to stop. Because if you go there as a foreigner, people will want to welcome you and make you feel welcome, even though they're in dire straits. Yeah. And so I thought, I don't want to do that anymore. I've done it for too long. So I developed a virtual helpline and it's been really helpful because it came in Haiti, it came in Christchurch, it passed on to Japan and got Japanese speaking people because I don't speak Japanese to actually do the work. And I was just in the background supporting in Nepal because they spoke. I did a lot of the work and supported the local social workers and students who were going to help people. It's so interesting. There's so much connection between the macro and the micro here. And you say having to stand up against bureaucracy and how some people, I think how sometimes managers might want to portray something that isn't quite the case and then having to be creative and be curious. So they're all skills that are in social work, aren't they? And I wonder for new social workers, I think it's helpful to think that those skills that you're using in your job, they are relevant in this global nature and they probably will need to be relevant in a global nature in the next few now really and in the next few years so yeah. you chair the Baswa special interest group for social working disasters and emergencies for new social workers who are listening and are thinking this is relevant for me I care I want to do something but I don't know how what would your advice be to them first of all I say trust in program it teaches you the main skills that you need so from assessing risk you have to identify but we do that anyway because with people we're trying to work out is this person going to be dangerous to this other person to themselves so we've got the skills risk assessments we also mitigate the risk because we think okay how am I going to stop this person from abusing or taking money away from this older person. And we always plan. We plan an action plan. Hopefully we're all good social workers and we involve the people in co-production, as I call it now, in like saying, okay, and it isn't just them telling me what to do. It's actually a real conversation. I say, what you're saying is good, but there is this problem about it. 
And I let them say, what you're saying is good, but I don't like this part of it. We come up with something new and different. And that always produces a better outcome. And then we implement our action plan and we evaluate it. And then when another disaster comes along or a shock or a piece of bad behavior, we evaluate what we've done and we try to figure out where did we go wrong? What have we done wrong? So all the skills, you're applying them in a different context. You may not have the language, you may not have the culture, but if you work with the local people and you all, if I don't know the language, I am very lucky to be in languages. I speak several languages fluently, but I also pick up languages quickly and forget them quickly. But wherever I've gone, give me two and I'll be talking about food and how to get from A to B in the local language. And then the minute I get on the plane, it goes, it's gone. But yeah, anyway, I just think we need to be more open to the fact that our skills, our basic generic skills are what we use. Nobody trained me to do disaster work. I trained myself and I used the knowledge and the skills that I had. And also the knowledge and the skills from the people who were doing these things. And so that apprenticeship model that we use all the time in social work is really good because I'm always learning new and different things every time I get involved, whether it's on the ground or virtually. And I think, yeah, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And then I ask questions like, so for example, in China, we noticed that some of the old buildings weren't falling down like the new ones were. We knew why the new ones were falling down because we had civil engineers, but we didn't know why the old ones were. So some of the social workers, Chinese social workers, local ones, and I went and started questions. And then we found out that they used in the old days, didn't have the substances that make it stick together like we do in modern cement. So when the earthquake comes, Move the building would move because the bricks would move and the stones or whatever they were would slide this way or that way because the mortar allowed them to do that. So we said, okay, so yeah, we've got to do something to start bringing back some of this old knowledge and skills and wasting it. And the same thing with agriculture, not by my colleagues like Ben Ben Ku or Hook Bun Ku as his Chinese name is. We written a couple of articles together about green social work in China and not only eating together, <laughs> where we tried to develop a sustainable model of looking at agriculture, architecture and agriculture and building sustainable livelihoods. And so there are loads of things we can do. We can build, uh, help bring solar panels. We can't build them, but we can get hold of the people who do. And sometimes you convince them to give them free. I did. There's nothing that we can't do if we use our ingenuity as social workers. Social workers are creative beings because we want, we really genuinely want to make a difference. It's not just something that we say, and that helps us to find things. Yeah. That's so amazing to hear because it can be really difficult in social work in the micro in day to day job. I know for new social workers to just feel so heavy with everything. And then when you look at the news and you look at climate crisis and what's happening, that can also feel so heavy. And then it almost stops that action because yeah. it feels so heavy that you can't move. But actually it is action and movement and doing 
that is going to propel us forward, isn't it? It is. And I had an experience with Japanese social workers who said, give us an example of where we can use it in everyday life. Most of you are working with children and families. So I wrote in which they translated into Japanese how you do work with children and families. You might be doing an investigation child sexual condition of the housing the lack of money poverty which until climate change came along poverty was the disaster in the world and green social work takes that right away and i think well we can use the universal declaration of human rights like articles 22 to 27 which are about having the rights to shelter medicine health services education got them all there that's what we're always providing so you can go and use this holistic kind of like your house can't just be a house it's got to be a house that's adapted to your environment so let's look at what that means yeah and then you work with them to find out what it means do you that there's a growing campaign at the moment in the uk and lots of strikes happening do you think that is the next step forward in terms of the social work profession in showing a collective wish or demonstrating a collective commitment to something? Or do you think there's another way? I think other ways, not just another way. I think strikes have their place, but I'm not convinced that the current strikes in the UK is the way, mainly because the only people who suffer on strike they in the uk they lose or wages or whatever and that imposes more hardship on people who are all experiencing hardship i am a member of the union and i've always been active in the union you tried to argue we need to do something different maybe i did suggest but nobody's taken me up when i suggested during the first strike that was taken but I then went on and said, we need to do something different. And this something different, as I said, we all reasonable length holidays as academics. And we can take one week each. There's 80,000 of us, I think. One week each. And we all go and test and keep just going around silently, big placards saying, we want this, that, and the other. Circling around 24-7. We take shifts, but and we do one week, and then it moves on to the next branch. We've got lots of branches we can do this with. And I just think, I think that would be, the media would be there. And we could talk to the media, our point of view. Anyway, nobody's taken me up on that. And I said, it's anything. We would just take, and there's no way in which the take you tell you where to go during your days off so if you go in and pick it the, uh, the levers of power and where are made because all of our decisions about education and social services are made in Whitehall and in Downing Street so if we go to them as they're responsible that's why we're picketing you and I yes and I am sacrificing holidays that I work hard for to be I think that would be a much more powerful message. People don't even know, like I was saying to people, not even students. I was talking to some of them the other day about the strikes, not the ones that we're going to have, but the ones we had before recently. And I said, 
that if you go on strike, you lose your money. No pay, yeah? No, I didn't know that. Really? I said, yes. And I said, and for a lot of people, families more than those who don't, I said, it's a really big hardship thing, which is why we have a hardship fund. Yeah, it's all. So I think we have to start being creative, even in this area. I made one suggestion. I'm sure that if we sat down as a group and talked about what else can we do to be creative and different so that the media won't know, certainly at the beginning, it won't know how to react with a bunch of people taking turns to go and picket the levers of power. And as long as you're moving, they can't stop you. Yeah. They'll change the law. I know that. We have because they'll work out, oh, so they're finding this way around it. Just Extinction Rebellion found ways around it. So what did they do? They changed the law. And then they apply it to everybody. So we have to also be vigilant about that, I think. Yeah. No, I think that's interesting because... It's like in social work, isn't it? There isn't just one way. And like you say, for some people not to realise that when people go on strike that they don't get paid and the ongoing impact that has. And we are going to have to start thinking creatively and maybe people who are in a position to do so can use their annual leave to do things like that and to pick it to get that publicity and attention. And yeah, I suppose it's the same as social work, not being fixed as this is the only way. And actually there might have to be other ways. And it's a sacrifice to take a day's annual leave, but it's also a sacrifice to take a day of no pay as well, isn't it? So it's trying yeah, to find absolutely. that balance that's realistic for people. My one question left is that if oh, you good. could go back to when you were a new social worker and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, just to be open to change Look forward to opportunities for change and work with the people that are there with you, both your colleagues, like other workers, the users particularly. I would argue feminist social work, social work, I've learned from the people working with me how to develop those new ways of thinking. And if anybody wants to read about how with the physical scientists like civil engineers and give them this knowledge and skills of community engagement, which they get from us, I would suggest they read Doing Flood Science Differently, which is an article published in 2011 by Stuart Lane, S. Lane, L-A-N-E, and that will tell you how he went there as a civil engineer had this idea, this is what we do to stop floods in Pickering, and then decided to do what I was talking about, because by that time I was in, and that was why he was really keen to get me into IHRR. He was my boss for a while. He's now in Switzerland. And he said, I went there with this idea. And then people come to watch, of course. We're all curious, yeah. If there's somebody that you think, oh, what are they doing there? People go and watch. So apparently this group of people went to watch and one man said what are you doing there and why blah 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 and then he said I wouldn't start here and I wasn't there Stuart thought oh yeah community engagement dialogue that's what social workers keep going on about so he opened up the dialogue um, and then the the people said will you come with us and we'll show you where we think you need to change things so they went up to the watershed area out of town 
And the people said, this is what we do here. And they talked about what they would do. And he listened. And then he said, actually, that's better, except for one thing. We've got to change one thing, that, which was about the physical dynamics of whatever they were talking about. And as far as I know, since 2011, Pickering hasn't had a flood. So there are things that, and this was new and different. And he wrote it up as doing flood science differently. So do look at it. Yeah, I'll find it and I'll link it in the show notes for people. Yeah, there's a long tradition in many disciplines, including in in the physical sciences, of some scientists, and especially those that have worked with communities, saying we've got to do things differently. But the training is all... I certainly didn't have any training on community act. When I was doing physical sciences, I did chemistry, biology, physics, math. And that was going, I did it. It wasn't until I went into sociology and community work and started thinking, no, we need to do things differently. Even in, at that point, I was doing them both together. And then, yeah, I'm just thankful. And I think maybe I didn't make enough of this in answering your first question. I was actually very lucky. I had teachers in high school who encouraged me to be critical and to be curious. Same thing in university, all the way through from undergraduate to PhD level and even qualifying as a social worker. (laughs) Thank you. because It's been so amazing to talk to you and just to soak up your wisdom for even just a small little hour and hear about being curious and being open and just moving forward and being relentless in that when everything is against you and you've continued to do that and you will keep doing that won't you yeah yeah and I just want to say to everybody remember we live in a beautiful world our planet is fantastic wherever you live please look after it and look after it for yourselves and for all future generations the animals the plants and the earth itself and that's the note I'd like to end on Uh, Thank you. And I hope you all have some ideas about something we could do for the future, whether it's social work practice, green social work practice, it doesn't matter. They're all interrelated and they'll all do the job of making the world better for all of us. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you took as much from that conversation as I did. I'm very grateful to Lena for giving up her time to talk to me and share her learning. It was so fascinating to hear about her journey through social work, the different things that she's seen and experienced and the work that she has done and continues to do. And I think for new social workers listening to know how transferable those social work skills are that you have like Lena was talking about, your assessment skills, your reasoning, your observation, your ability to work with different people, it is all so relevant to what Lena has created in Green Social Work. And I hope that from listening to this podcast, you might just read something that's been recommended, you might just tune in a little bit more to what is happening with the climate crisis and how that connects with social work. The work that you are doing day to day is completely linked to the climate crisis, oppression, poverty, so many of the things that we see children and families impacted by is all caught up in what is happening globally in terms of climate crisis and climate justice. So please tune into it and choose to 
be positive and productive and take action and I will be trying very much to do the same. If this podcast has made you think or reflect on something in your job, if you have had a big takeaway from one of the topics that we talked about, please let me know, get in touch. You can send me a message, you can send me an email, I'll put all the details in the show notes. It's so good to get your feedback about the podcast and what you liked or what you found helpful. So, as I always do, at the end of every podcast, I would encourage you, wherever you are, to stop, take a pause, close your eyes if you feel comfortable, and just take one deep breath. Know that this is a place that you can come back to in your day whenever you need to, to stop and reflect. Thank you so much for listening and take care.